Today on the podcast, we have Anne Wintemute from Highlands Micro School. Highlands describes itself as a progressive, non-religious, independent elementary school in northwest Denver, Colorado. It's a very small school, hence the term micro. At their capacity, they hope to serve a grand total of 24 students. Um, Anne is the founder and director of the Highlands Micro School. We have a very interesting conversation with you today, not just about kind of buzzwordy things like micro schools or progressive education or any of those, but actually a deeper conversation about their philosophical orientation, how they view children, the responsibilities they should be able to have, and how they should best be educated. So without further ado, my conversation with Anne Wintemute. Okay, so when we see the term micro school, this is something that I think is popping up in in lots of different, uh, I read Ed Week articles, I see news stories and others. I would love maybe we could start with what is a micro school? Well, micro schools in a similar form to, you know, how they're represented today have been around since the beginning of education. Uh, they tend to be small groups of like-minded people with uh, similar interests uh, in terms of, you know, their perspective about what the role of education is in a child's life. Uh, you know, originally they were, um, you know, small town schools. Uh, schools began to consolidate over the years. They got bigger. Uh, but a lot of small schools just like ours continued to exist. Uh, today, there is a growing tend or trend toward uh, moving back to those small schools uh, where children were you know, deeply known, spent many years with the same teachers, uh, pursued things of particular interest uh, to them, uh, and you know, really developed their um, you know, personalities and character aspects right alongside with their academics. Uh, today, there's more technology influence in micro schools. Um, I think that there are kind of two types going on right now. Um, one that um, kind of pushes a little bit back toward that uh, old world model of schooling and one that's uh, kind of crushing ahead into the future in terms of what platforms technology um, can create um, to produce curriculum for students uh, at their schools. So now your school, would you, which of those two camps would you say that it falls into? We are definitely a low-tech school um, compared to a lot of other micro schools, a bit more of the uh, nostalgia. Uh, we uh, see technology as having a role in terms of gathering information um, about the outside world, uh, reproducing our understanding of information, be it through, you know, PowerPoint presentations or, you know, claymation, or um, obviously, you know, students are typing up work. Um, we use technology to supplement in areas where we may not have as much teacher expertise. Um, for example, coding uh, is something that's used. Um, there's something that we use technology here for. But in our K-1 space, uh, there is almost no computer use. Uh, that definitely differs from uh, some of the other well-known micro schools like um, alt schools where um, students come in, uh, you know, kind of with a, an iPad as an appendage, um, so to speak, to their educational experience. I was going to say coding would be difficult to do without a computer. I imagine you could, but your your wrist might get tired from that. That's true. <laughs> I meant more specifically in terms of the instruction on coding. Sure. Um, you know, we don't have a coding teacher, uh, so that's not just something that's uh, 
you know, exercised through the use of a computer tool. It's learned oh, right and appreciated and, and whatnot through that tool. Cool. So, so how many students do you all serve currently? We have 22 students. Uh, we're in our second year. We have a capacity at our location of about 24 students. Um, as we grow, we'll be K-5. We're currently, uh, this coming year, we'll be K-4. through four. And sort of uh, just, were you adding one grade each year? Was that your plan, or what did you what did you start with? Yeah, that was our original intent. We started with kindergartners as first graders. Um, you know, I use those terms as equivalents. We're really kind of a lower and an upper elementary school here. But uh, and then we anticipated our second year that we would add a new kindergarten class, and then we'd be K one two. But we had a, a fair amount of interest in expanding out the upper elementary class at that time, so we went went ahead and did so ahead of schedule. That's great. So. I'm trying to kind of visualize the, the student experience. Maybe we could start with the, the physical environment. What, what does your school look like? What does a child see when they walk in the door? Uh, well, first, they're going to, all around us, they're going to see uh, residential homes. We're in a residential neighborhood. We converted a, uh, what was a rented duplex uh, into what's now a two-room schoolhouse. Um, so from the curb, it looks very much like a residential property, except that it's a um, it has a little bit of yellow schoolhouse flair with a little cupola bell tower on the top uh, and an American flag um, flying out front. Uh, when they walk in, um, they're going to see an atmosphere that is very much a blend between a classroom space and a home space. Um, you know, the, the ways in which kids store their shoes and jackets and, and backpacks are much more like home. Um, there are couches, um, you know, kind of a scattering of of, uh, you know, a variety of seating and table options, um, you know, library nooks. Uh, there's a kitchenette. Uh, the kids prepare their food here much like they would at, at home or like adults would at an office. Uh, we don't sell food. Um, they bring it in, they heat it up, they chop up a salad if they need to. Um, so it's very much a blend between uh, what you'd expect to see in a home and what you would expect to see uh, in a school. It's wallless. Um, the two classrooms are separated by a, uh, a shared kitchen. So then from the, the actual learning process, what does a typical day look like for a student? A, a typical day has a great deal of choice. Uh, all of the kids have uh, mapped out, you know, the beginning of each week what they um, intend to accomplish over their, that week. And they'll put that into you know, what they would call a have-to folder. Uh, and, you know, plenty of the time is spent in group, working with each other in some structured activities. Uh, and then there are blocks left where the students are independently completing the work that they have in their have-to folders. Um, you know, obviously, especially uh, in elementary school, um, less so in, in some junior and high school environments, there's, uh, you know, a lot of skill building. Um, you know, kids are, uh, you know, kind of learning foundational math principles. Um, before they're uh, exercising more applied principles. And is that more sort of teacher-directed to get those? I mean, I, I appreciate children charting their own path and other, and, and other sort of um, opportunities that they might have, but perhaps some of those foundational skills that they need to know, they might not necessarily want to know or not, might not go there on their own volition. So what role does the teacher play in sort of guiding students towards the things that they need to know? Uh, there's, uh, I would argue somewhat with the premise. Uh, oh, please do. We have found that when kids are invested in the goals they have set for themselves, they're actually quite eager to accomplish tasks that, 
you know, in another environment where the, the goal had been set for them, they might not be particularly interested in. Uh, now, with that said, uh, you know, young students are being guided in their access to information as much as they are in the actual uh, skill. Uh, so, you know, things like reading can be a barrier to accessing, a, you know, a word problem. Um, coming up with strategies uh, for retention on snapbacks, uh, you know, those are about access to those word problems. So much of the direct instruction that's being done is in this foundation of creating access for these kids to be able to, um, you know, sit down and take on uh, unfamiliar problems to them. Uh, those skills, um, that kind of learning how to learn um, skill is a, a foundational premise here at the school. We're less interested in teaching children how to do something uh, or what to do than we are in them being able to sit down and understand what processes are necessary to accomplish their own goals. Well, and so as you describe your school, you know, I think perhaps some people might focus on the micro element of it, that, that, that it's a small a very small school in this residential environment. But one of the things that stands out to me is it seems that you all have a kind of different attitude about children than perhaps I might argue would be the dominant one in a lot of schools across the country. Even the mm-hmm. the anecdote that you told me about, you know, if, if kids need to come in and chop up a salad, I mean, that I wouldn't imagine that involves handing a small child a knife to to cut things, which perhaps other people in schools... <laughs> well, God, don't look at our playground. You'll see the saws and drills well, great. and all okay. sorts so, of things out so, there. So, <laughs> so I think, you know, so I used to, I, I used to be a teacher myself, um, come from a family of teachers and in various schools that they've taught in. You know, if you were to go in and say, okay, hey, just so you know, tomorrow we're going to hand kids saws and drills or we're going to hand them knives to chop things, there I, there might be a great commotion about that. So I would be interested, sort of where does that philosophy come from? How does it manifest itself? How do you see children responding to that? I would just love mm-hmm. to know that whole kind of philosophical orientation of your school. Yeah, so risk and the taking of it is uh, innate in our, our humanness. There is no learning. There is no exploration. There is no frontier if people are not willing to take risks. And we insulate uh, ourselves, children, uh, from risk so much. And I think it is to very much to their detriment. Uh, we insulate them from taking academic risks. Uh, we do so by placing grades. Uh, the, the only risk is whether or not they achieve the grade. It was never a, an intellectual risk or an academic risk. Uh, we insulate them from physical risks by, um, uh, you know, making playgrounds that are so, um, you know, lawsuit proof uh, that, uh, you know, the opportunity to fall off the edge of something and realize that you kind of got to pay attention to, you know, the surface that you're on, those risks are taken away. Um, our students always, anytime they're outside, they have access to the workbench. There are saws, screws, drills, vice grips. And, you know, there's a dustpan next to it and an expectation that all of the saws are hung back up when they're done and, you know, the service is swept. These kids don't view the tools as uh, dangerous. They view them as uh, components to help them create and build the world around them. Uh, We spend a lot of time in the beginning of the year, tool by tool, and this could be a kitchen knife or a... uh, you know, an eraser or a a pencil sharpener, how do we use this tool? What does this tool mean to us? Um, You know, what kinds of things could break it? 
Um, how does this tool give us access to other things? Um, how do we clean up after it? And the kids are so invested in their space. Um, they feel respected, trusted, uh, and they don't want to violate that. They work very hard to, to make sure that that respect is going both ways uh, and that there's not something that's going to affect it. And so now I imagine that might take a special kind of parent or a special kind of family to to also buy into that mentality. I imagine, and again, correct me if I'm wrong, but that's a, a sort of attitude about child rearing that mm-hmm. would need to be shared in the home environment. So how do you, do you have to work with parents to sort of explain what y'all are doing? Do people sort of select in who already view child rearing in that way? How do you kind of liaise or work with parents to reinforce this belief in the sort of innate abilities and capabilities of children? I would say that that first there is some self-selection. These are parents who have, uh, they're looking at alternative school options that kind of critically assessed the environments in which they would consider placing their child and, and, you know, requested a tour with us. Uh, When I tour the facility, you know, first I meet with families in my office. We spend some time getting to know each other. I want to understand, you know, what, they envision the role of education to be in their child's life. And and then after that, we'll do a tour of the physical space. And when we walk outside, the first thing I do is say, this playground, we have a really beautiful natural playground with a tremendous amount of risk in it. I say, this playground is built on our philosophy that physical risk is an important component in childhood development. Uh, we walk into the studio, they see the tools out, they see that the kids are using hot glue guns whenever they want to. Um, And the truth is, we haven't had injuries that you would expect to see on a playground and a, you know, a studio creation space that we have. Uh, The kids really are good at assessing the risks around them, making appropriate decisions. uh, And, and, uh, maximizing the value that they get out of the access to those things uh, without uh, really uh, experiencing any of the potential harms. Um, Our biggest uh, risk on our playground is splinters. (laughs) (laughs) That's the one that we get all the time. And it's all a wood playground and we get a lot of splinters. (laughs) Uh, So I think the, uh, when they see the kids building these, uh, you know, amazing forts and building swings out of the trees and seeing the joy on the kids' faces, um, at the end of the day, they would rather just not watch while the play is happening, turn around, don't look, but understand that the kids are really making some pretty good decisions for themselves. So how do you all measure success? It seems that you want to accomplish a lot of things, both what we might consider traditional academic preparation, but a mm-hmm. whole lot of things about about sort of learning and growing. So how do you know that what you're doing is working? Right. That's a, a question that we revisit all the time across the spectrum of things that we value. Um, some of the things I value, so I'm the director here. I'm not only responsible um, for the you know, student achievement, uh, I'm responsible for the satisfaction of the employees who work here, uh, for the facilities, uh, for the continued enrollment and support from parents. Uh, so I evaluate success in a lot of ways. Um, one, or the, the most obvious is I should have happy teachers, happy students, and happy parents. 
And by and large, when all of those things are true, the other measurements of success are probably also true. We're not going to have happy families when, you know, we have uh, students who we would suspect would be successful academically in a traditional environment, not succeeding academically here. We wouldn't be able to have a happy family if that were true. Um, we, uh, we do do assessments um, throughout the year to, um, to get an idea of where our students are academically um, if they were in a traditional environment. Um, so we do use some of the same tools that another school would use to evaluate the academic success. Um, but in addition to that, uh, we evaluate through the constant monitoring and conversations with the people who are intimately involved with the school. So I, I love that that idea of happy uh, teachers, happy students, happy parents. I think oftentimes people ask me, I tend to work more in the policy realm and in the research realm. But if folks ask me, you know, what do you want out of schools or what do you want? My reaction is usually to say, I want schools where teachers love to teach and children love to learn. And it yep. seems to me that if you've got, if you're satisfying those things, and I think adding the parental dimension is an is important one there because perhaps, you know, teachers and students could love if they were just kind of hanging out all day and enjoying, but right. parents <laughs> providing a check on, on all, all three, I think is, is helpful. So you mentioned teachers a couple times. I'm interested to know both on a sort of practical level. So you have 22 students. How many teachers do you have? Where do you find your teachers? Like what, what do you do kind of special professional development with them so that they can thrive in this environment? Yeah, those are really good questions because professional development is an area that is gravely lacking in this, you know, learner-centered model. Um, but that's not because people are not making an effort to uh, to create it. It's just that these schools tend to be far and few between. Uh, so we have, yeah, the 22 students. We have three teachers uh, in the classroom with them, um, and uh, and me on staff. We've got a you know separate music teacher. Um, phys ed teacher, uh, but they're not in the class on a you know day to day basis. Uh, and then we've also got our life skills block teacher, um, and he was here from three to six in the afternoon. So the kids have you know four or five adults um, that they're interacting with on a daily basis here. Uh, finding teachers is significantly more challenging uh, than I expected it to be. Uh, you know, in the startup phase, I was meeting with teachers all the time who were just, oh, God, this is a dream job. You know, I'd be so excited to take this on. Um, you know, I want to work in an environment where I'm respected, where I'm trusted to do my job, where I have the freedom to, you know, make adaptations based on the needs of a particular student. Uh, but it's been interesting that uh, it, through our interview processes, it's been very clear very early on in each interview um, how much Teaching in a traditional environment has um, boxed teachers in. You know, when we have teachers come in and interview, we tell them, remember, this is a micro school. Remember that, you know, the world is your scope, that you can take these teachers or these kids outside and run around the block with them if you want to. Uh, you know, don't put, uh, you know, any walls around what you come in and choose to do with these kids during this interview process. And I tell you, nine out of 10 of them cannot come up with something that I wouldn't expect to see in a traditional school, if that makes sense. No, totally. Uh, so, and these are teachers who have already, you know, self-selected for an environment where they really felt like they like, they would be able to be unique in their planning. Wow. Why, why do you think that is? Uh, I think that it's not that dissimilar. Teaching in an environment like that, this is not that dissimilar from being an entrepreneur. 
You have to be quick on your feet. You use the resources that are available to you, and nobody is standing behind you to pick up the pieces. You have to have ultimate faith in yourself, ultimate faith in the process, um, you know, a great deal of respect between coworkers. It is not um, a, a typical environment where someone's going to come in and say, no, you're not doing it right. Do it like this. And I think the longer teachers have been in a traditional school, the more challenging it is for them to really break out of that environment and do something that's truly different. It's, it's almost like damaged goods. <laughs> but we see that. We see it, too, when we have kids come transfer in from other schools. Uh, we see it too. By the time we've got a kid coming in in third grade, you know, they spent three years in another school. Uh, We can really see the effects of the absence of independence, the absence of expectations for contributions on things that are not evaluated. Uh, It's very interesting. No, absolutely. So now, as I said before, you know, I'm kind of a policy guy. So one of the things I'm interested in is, are there public policies either at the local level or at the state level or at the national level that make your life more difficult? Do you feel like you have a pretty pretty wide latitude to do what you want to do? Or is there red tape that gets in your way or got in your way when you were trying to start? How do you intersect with with all of those varying ranges of policies? The policies have very little impact on us. Uh, the way in which the policies probably have the most impact is the anxiety, like the knowledge of them produces anxiety in our parents. And then those parents express that anxiety. To <laughs> us. Uh, so, you know, if we continue to develop policy in a framework of, oh, God, schools in America are failing, uh, then that anxiety of, oh, no, we're lagging behind as a country. What are you know, what is the school doing to be different? The anxiety produced by that we may. Um, feel and experience here. Uh, but as an independent school, uh, very little of the policy um, affects us, which is awesome. That's great. You know, and, and it's interesting that the, the unfortunate kind of irony when we talk about comparing American schools to schools around the world. I was struck, I was, I was traveling in Europe not that long ago. I was in Austria um, and was on a kind of like commuter train. So not like a local subway, but a commuter train out in kind of the hinterlands. I was in a went down a cruise down the Vakau Valley. Highly recommend it, listeners, uh, if you have the chance to see it. It's, it's breathtaking. But one of the things that struck me was I was coming back about the time that school was letting out. And a whole bunch of children just got on at one station and <laughs> yep. went kind of, they were, talk, they were talking to one another, they were reading books, or they were doing whatever, and they got off the next station. I saw some people had parents that were waiting to pick them up there. Or they walked away, and, I, and I, I'm always struck when I visit other countries, I try to visit schools, meet people, how much many other countries have a deeply different view about children than we do um, and really see much more potential, have much more expectation for students, both in the sort of freedom that they have to kind of like hang out and just be mm-hmm. and like you go to other places and you're like kids are walking around everywhere and it's okay. <laughs> like it's fine. Yeah. And just the level, the level with which they are trusted to manage their lives and figure out stuff for themselves from a very young age. So Honestly, when I think about international comparisons or others, the thing that stresses me out is the degree to which we often restrict the autonomy of our children. Mm-hmm. I say, like, give them more, give them more opportunities, give them more responsibilities. They are absolutely uh, capable of it. But that's my own little, uh, that's my own little diatribe. I agree completely, and and I frame that in a in a different way. I 
often am asking myself, why do we think so little of our children? Yeah, exactly. Why do we think that they're incapable of running out to the pizza shop around the block and picking up our pizza? Yeah. That's something that I have my kids do. Uh, we think we must think so little of children and of our neighbors to fear letting our kids walk down the street. But I think it's, I think it's two-sided or two-pronged. I think one is we don't give our kids the credit for the immense capacity that they really do have. And that two, we are terrified of seeing our kids struggle and fail. Totally. It pains us as parents, the degrees to which people will go in order to preserve their child from an iota of emotional or physical pain is ridiculous. Totally. Uh, so I think the, the combination of the two, the fact that we really cannot We've proven we cannot appropriately assess the capacity of our children, uh, and we're terrified of seeing them get hurt. Yeah, and especially getting hurt on such low stakes, right? So, like, if a yes, if, that's the whole point. The stakes are so low right now. Let them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Because if kids never fail at low stakes, when they eventually fail with high stakes, they'll have no capability of being able to deal with that, right? I mean, I think yep. this is yes. I mean, you see these unfortunate, you know cheating scandals in colleges or whatever and you're just like mm -hmm. you know, the kids don't know how to cope with any of this sort of stuff because it was like yeah listen if you get if a child gets caught cheating on their fourth grade spelling test like there is a lesson to be learned you can recognize that you know you're not supposed to do that you're supposed to do your own work and, and do that whatever um but if you always sort of deny them that ability to learn that or any of these sorts of things of, yeah, you know what? If you aren't careful with tools on the playground, um, they will hurt you. And Lord willing, <laughs> it's not something super, you know, super difficult, but but you 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 want them to to know those consequences when it's again, when it's when it's cheap and yes. before you, you you have to learn that lesson the hard way. Yeah. So speaking of lessons learned, I would love to know from from your perspective of, of running school for the time period that you have, um, what are some lessons? I would love to, like if you could go back and uh, and and give yourself some advice before you started this whole process. Like what are some what are some lessons you learned that you'd wish you'd known when you got started? Gosh, you know, that's tough because I'm the kind of person that loves going into a space with with no information and then creating information out of it. So I liked uh, I liked the way that uh, I didn't have many of the answers uh, when I started up. But I um, am often uh, called on, emailed by people who want to start um, schools around the country, and I'm really grateful to be able to give them a lot of, of sound information uh, as they move forward. Gosh, what would I, what would I tell myself? Or even what what advice do you give to those folks? If if that's an easier question to answer, I the major one I say is never compromise on uh, you know what your philosophical uh, sense is for your school. Don't ever let someone push you against that. Decide before you open your doors where you stand on. Uh, a handful of things, you know, discipline, how do we talk to the students, how do we assess the students, and then hold firm on those, because there's a great deal of pressure to bend to the norm, and if small school startups like us are doing that, we don't deserve to exist. If we're bending and becoming, you know, uh, another apple in the apple basket, we shouldn't be here. We're no longer serving the kids. 
but I think that if, uh, you know, uh, teacherpreneurs, um, people like me who are starting schools, don't spend some time really saying, what can I live with at my school? Uh, what do I have to have? What can I not have happening there? Uh, and then marry those and commit to them. Don't let anybody change your mind. Um, most of the assistance that I provide tends to be far more practical. Um, uh, things like, you know, figuring out zoning for your building, um, uh, you know, changes, construction changes that you want to make, how to set up the budget properly, really kind of those practical things that you don't want to mess up on because they're a little harder to uh, recover from later. Um, for the most part, uh, you know, each of these small schools are going to be very much uniquely them. Um, you know, kind of made in a, a creation of the dream of the founder. Uh, but there's a lot of things that are going to be similar, like, you know, how do you manage enrollment? How do you process billing? Um, you know, what kind of compensation packages do you provide teachers and those kinds of things. But I try to be helpful in those as much as possible and let the, uh, the founder cover the rest. Well, great. Well, look, and thank you so much for chatting with us uh, today. This was a wonderful conversation. So this Ann Wintemute Highlands Micro School, thank you so much for taking the time. Thank you. How great was that, right? Um, you know, that was a really fun conversation to have because I think we were able to go a little bit beyond just talking about the nuts and bolts of how their school operates or what it looks like and really talk about the philosophical orientation that they have towards their students and developing children into young adults and eventually adults. Oftentimes, we might get lost in some of those details and we care about, oh, this school does you know, a double block of math or this school does direct instruction or others. It's important to spend some time actually thinking about how do those schools view children and their role in shaping children's lives. So Anne was a great sport in not just engaging and talking about the day-to-day -day activities of her school, but also talking about what they view their role in, in shaping children's development and how they view that, which I, which I certainly appreciate. That wasn't necessarily what I asked her or <laughs> said I was going to do when we first started talking. So she was a great sport, and I really appreciate that. As always, if you're enjoying what you're listening to, please subscribe to this podcast wherever you get your podcasts. You can also always sign up for the EdChoice email list. Please do. You can go to our website, edchoice.org, and I think within a click or two, a box will pop up. You can create a profile for yourself and you can get all of our cool content headed your way and you can shape it so you only get the stuff that you're interested in and not others. Um, we should be back in a couple of weeks with the next installment of Cool Schools as always. Thanks for taking the time for, for joining us and for hearing about another really cool school. Hmm.